This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I am Dr Doolittle and we have a lot to discuss this morning. First up, in the studio, we have Professor Noel Woodford. Now, who remembers Quincy MD? A US TV show about a forensic pathologist who solved crimes like murder and stuff like that through examining forensic evidence. Or perhaps I could be just a little more contemporary with my references, maybe go to CSI Bones and the likes. But anyway, we've got the real thing. Now, I suspect he'll say his job is far less glamorous, but Noel is the director of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. It's a big job. It's actually quite a responsible job, probably one that I shouldn't be flipping about. Nevertheless, it's a job we need to know about, and he's here to tell us all. Also in the studio is Trainer Wheels. Now, she's been looking at some news that the Trump administration has opposed a World Health Assembly resolution promoting breastfeeding. She's going to tell us what's it all about. Plus... The panel beater. He's going back to the story that keeps on giving. The rescue of the Thai soccer team from the deep, dark, flooded cave. And he's asking why we engage with some world events yet ignore others. Why is it so? It's fascinating stuff. Anyway, sit back, put on your best smoking jacket, light a cigar, pour a whiskey and get ready to (laughs) ponder. You're listening to Radiotherapy. And that music reminds us that we like to kick off with the news. Doctor, Doctor, um, first up, let's say g'day to everyone. Let's start with you, Trainer Wheels. How are you? I'm honestly feeling a bit sick after the mention of the cigar and the whiskey at this hour of the morning. Really? What? You don't? When do you have your first cigar and whiskey? <laughs> Never before eleven. No, so, no, I know you're only a trainee doctor, but if you want to get if you want to get good at it on the weekend, your first cigar and whiskey is normally ten a.m. You put your Is jacket right? on, you sit in your leather chair, you turn on insiders and then outsiders, whatever. They call on the ABC, and yeah, and Professor Woodford, you'd do that every week, wouldn't you? I'm a bit of a Barry fan, yes. Steve. Yeah, but you wouldn't smoke. You wouldn't smoke anymore, though, would you? Uh, you'd no, be against that. No, no, oh, no. Yeah. Gave up quite some time ago. Yeah, we all gave up. And you, you know what? I can't put my finger on it. Can I call you Noel? Is that yes, okay? Yes, you can. Because Professor Woodford just seems like a mouthful. And also, I've got this weird feeling of deja vu that I've like that I've seen you before. You're not that guy I went to uni with 30 years ago and have been mates with for the past 30 years, are you? I suspect that's the case. Are we doing nepotism again where we bring our friends in to tell <gasps> us to do interviews? Well, you know, sometimes you have to take advantage. I'm take, I've known this guy forever and, I'm t- and he's got one of the top jobs in Victoria. So I thought I'm, I've twisted his arm and forced him to come in. But thank you, Noel, for coming well, thanks in. Thanks for the invitation. And panel beater, how are you, man? Top of the morning. Very well, I think. You've still got your winter beard on. I still got For those people who can't see <laughs> the us coach. through the radio, yeah. he's got this winter beard and it looks, it does look very impressive. Oh. You look like Bear Grylls, who I've never seen before, but that's what I imagine Bear Grylls looks like. Excellent. Put that image in the listener's mind. I've got a face for radio, is that what you're <laughs> I think you're very handsome. <laughs> I really do. Oh, what a charming morning. Do you, what, do you, what do you think? My goodness, what absolutely. Rest, if we were voting on who's the most oh. happy, we, you're No, the, we couldn't decide. No. It's too close to call. 
Should we get down to business? Yes. Because, you know, I, I have got a, I've got to warn you all, I've got a bit of a cold. I'm on a little bit of medication. I might be slightly <laughs> more disinhibited than normal. <laughs> Apologies to listeners. Just to, I was going to say turn Buckle off. Up. Don't I can't do even that. imagine more disinhibited than normal. Oh, I know. It's, it's scary. <laughs> scary for me too. Hey, uh, Trainer Wheels, you're going to kick the, um, you're going to kick the ball into the net and tell us I'm using a metaphor. Thank you World for Cup. the World Cup. I don't metaphor. know why. I don't know why. I was watching it this morning. Um, tell us about this, um, Trump administration breast milk bizarre. Sure. So you might have seen in the news this week revelations that the US administration under Trump, of course, seems to have tried to get in the way of promoting breastfeeding at mm. the World Health Assembly earlier in the year. So the World Health Assembly is the major decision-making body of the WHO, um, which is, of course, the UN's global health arm. And a few months ago, the annual assembly was held in Geneva and there was a resolution for governments to encourage breastfeeding, which was expected to be very quickly approved by delegates. Um, it's something they've been working on for a long time and it's backed up by decades of research proving that the health benefits of breastfeeding. However, this week, news came out that delegates from the US actually tried to get in the way of this resolution. And it seems like they might have bullied some lower-income countries into changing their stance on the issue too. So there are, there are reports that have been revealed that Ecuador, which had initially planned to introduce the measure, was actually pressured to drop the resolution after threats of trade measures and the withdrawal of critical military aid from the US. The Ecuadorian government, of course, gave in to this pressure. And it seems that many other countries, mostly from Africa and Latin America, were placed under similar pressure from the US, but they've remained anonymous for fear of retaliation. So that all sounds a bit serious. So at this stage, there's no direct evidence that baby food manufacturers were directly involved in all of this. But I think it's important to keep in mind that it is a $70 billion industry and it is dominated by US and European companies. Just a couple of them, I think, sort of have a bit of a monopoly. Um, and recently, sales of baby food, particularly formula, has flatlined in wealthy countries as more and more families embrace breastfeeding. So the vast majority of sales growth is likely to be in resource-poor countries. There are also reports that during this deliberation, some US delegates were actually threatening to cut contributions to the WHO. Currently, they contribute about 15% of its annual budget. So that also sounds very dodgy. Um, so in terms of why this resolution was being put forward in the first place, among lots of other research in the area. There's a Lancet study that came out in 2016, which found that universal breastfeeding would prevent 800,000 child deaths a year globally and yield 300 billion US dollars in savings each year from reduced healthcare costs. Of course, child mortality is disproportionately a problem in resource-poor regions, so the promotion of breastfeeding in these areas is of the utmost importance. Especially considering that access to safe drinking water and facilities for sterilising equipment associated and necessary for formula feeding is a, probably a bigger barrier for families in resource-poor settings. Um, pr the promotion of breastfeeding is obviously more important in those areas. So I think targeting the poorer countries by the US, obviously it just makes the whole thing a lot more dodgy in my mind. In the end, the resolution was passed by the World Health Assembly with a few changes. Interestingly, with major support from Russia, which... I thought was quite fascinating. Maybe a bit more sort of Cold War. Oh, who knows? Anyway, <laughs> the breast milk could be the, but the it thing did pass, that starts. But it was it watered was, down, so to speak. Yes, no pun intended. if you may. Yeah. Um, so the original language of the resolution included calls for the WHO to provide support for member states seeking to halt the inappropriate promotion of foods for infants and young children. Sorry, that was a little bit wordy. So originally, member states were going to be encouraged to 
restrict promotion of formula advertising, basically. Right. And that's been removed from the resolution. And the resolution now, I couldn't find the exact wording, but it was something along the lines of governments being obliged to promote and encourage breastfeeding, which sounds pretty uncontroversial to me, really. You know, just encourage it. That's not too bad. Um, You know, I I always get a little bit confused on this topic, I've got to say. Um, And I'll I'll tell you why. This, I remember when I was a medical student, this was one of my first experiences of politics entering evidence. So we were, I remember being a medical student, we were sitting in a lecture theatre, it was back at the women's hospital, we're going back 30 years. I know I don't look that old, but I am. And um, we're sitting in there and we've had our lectures around the benefits of breastfeeding, of which there are many to the baby in terms of immunity, illnesses like diabetes, obesity. There's all these benefits to children from being breastfed. There's all these benefits to the mum, um, less cancers and this, that and the other thing. They're all relatively small benefits statistically. And we're given a relatively balanced lecture about the pros and cons and how um, lots of people find it difficult to breastfeed and we, you know, and we need to be open and encourage everyone on their approach and let people make their own decision based on the evidence. And, and we, you know, saw that um, lots of people try to start breastfeeding, but um, after six months, it's down to a relatively small amount because it's hard for many people. And it was a fairly balanced lecture. And then came in, I've forgotten what they were called, the Infant Mothers Association or something like that. Anyway, they came in and, as I say, it was my first exposure to politics and, you know, influencing medicine. They came in and they were, I don't want to use the word militant because that's too strong, but they came in very firm, speaking down to us, telling us that doctors have a terrible reputation for not adequately supporting breastfeeding and we have to get behind it and this is a national tragedy. And, and you know, I remember we were all just a little bit uncomfortable. It, and I get it now. I'm totally comfortable with understanding the links between um, social forces, politics, and uh, and evidence based medicine. But back then, it was just. I remember we were all sitting there going, "Whoa!" You know, it's tricky. It was weird. Yeah, as usual, from my feminist point of view, it's tricky because obviously the promotion of breastfeeding is the promotion of freedom for women to use their bodies how they choose. Right? Like yep. a lot of the. The barriers for women who do want to breastfeed is that it's seen as inappropriate to do in public or, you know, their body's been sexualized and breastfeeding feels like an inappropriate use of their bodies and things like that. So the promotion of breastfeeding is a feminist project on one level, but then kind of I think the pro-breastfeeding movement potentially in some in places like Australia maybe has gone sort of too far the other way and puts additional pressure on women to be, you know, if you want to be the perfect mother, you have to breastfeed. And that's just not an option for some people and nor should it be, you know, if they don't want to or if they've got, you know, they're going back to work or they've got other kids to look after, other obligations or they just want their bodies back to themselves. <laughs> you know, it's, it's quite a burden to expect someone to be really at the beck and call of their baby for six months minimum. The For most, I had a similar experience, um, Steve. It was one of the first issues that I started to feel like I was engaging with, you know, capital P politics and so on. So it was the Nestle boycott. Does oh, yeah, ring a yeah, bell, yeah. right? Um, and so that reminds me how it's it's important to probably distinguish between how we might consider the issue for a country like Australia and Absolutely. and how we might consider the issue for you know what are conventionally understood as you know labelled developing countries. You know, so where sanitation's an issue, where mothers' health is an issue, and uh, babies' health, obviously, um, and. And there's a feminist aspect to understanding um, that for women in developing countries that's different to that choice 
uh, uh, empowerment um, and what is normal motherhood that is a discussion that we have in a a place like Australia. And that adds a, a nuanced debate aspect to the debate, I think. Absolutely. I think Doolittle, you were sort of getting at this too. I think the context is extremely important in terms of a public health measure, for sure. Encouraging breastfeeding, you know, the the evidence suggests that it's better for everybody if more babies are breastfed and encouraging that at a government level and a policy level absolutely should be a priority. But in terms of an individual level in places like Australia, I think leaving it to the family to decide what's best for them is reasonable. And I think it's... I was going to say, I think it's also important that we get very good and quality evidence to people because... And I've never been 100% convinced because a lot of the science I find is a bit politicised. Um, I, I strongly believe that breastfeeding's healthier for the mother and the baby, but um, I'm still a little bit uncertain because I've seen plenty of good studies, in fact... You know, recent studies too that suggest that some of the differences might not be purely because of the breast milk versus the formula. It might be due to the socioeconomic um, profile of the people who choose to breastfeed versus. Because, of the course, wealthier yeah. families are more likely to be able to breastfeed. And than so it's hard to tease families. apart some of the evidence. And there has been some studies over time that say, you know, a lot of the differences aren't as big as you realise when you control for those factors. Like you compare, say, siblings in a family, one child who got breastfed versus one who got bottle fed, the differences disappear a little bit. They're not as strong as when you just compare mm. overall raw figures. And in a public health context, just to complicate things further, of course, there's the issue of the sort of capitalist involvement of, you know, selling a product to people that is a resource that could be freely available for many people, really. I think whether it's first world, third world, whatever, I think that's where the rub is in common, you know, is the engagement of, you know, a a massive industry, um, you know, who have the access to the politicians through the policy making process, um, who can cherry pick research that suits, you know, as, yep. as Doolittle was saying, um, suits the sort of evidence that will support the, the viability of, of formula. And I think that's why people were so upset with this World Health Assembly situation, was that it, it seemed, although there's no clear evidence at the moment, it seemed as though it was industry interests getting in the way of public health interests. Yeah. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. And we are back. You are listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR. Hey, uh, you are listening to the usual crew. We have Panel Beater in here and we have Trainer Wheels. But we also have our special guest. Now, I briefly introduced him at the start. Let me tell you about him in a little bit more detail. Professor Noel Woodford is the director of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, which provides independent medical and scientific expertise to the justice system. Noel leads a team of forensic pathologists, in addition to specialists in paediatric pathology, radiology, odontology, anthropology and entomology. I'm so impressed that I got all of that out. I feel like I need an award. Noel is a pathologist by training, having trained at Melbourne and in the UK, and uh, he holds degrees in medical jurisprudence and law and is a professor at Monash University. G'day again, Noel. Uh, good morning. That is a long title. Yeah, thank you. Do you go through it each morning when you wake up? Uh, no, just in the witness box. Right. <laughs> in fact, in the Big witness... business card. That must be... Like, every time you go into the witness box you, box, you have to establish your credentials, don't you? Yeah, that's right. The court has to be satisfied that you're the appropriately expert. Um, yeah, expert in the issues at hand. How long does that take? Like, because I've just given a, a one-paragraph summary. I, I bet you there's more. The longer you're around and the more you know and the, the quicker it is. 
God, that would be fun. There must be people who do it for about, you know, I know some professors around town who would take pleasure in doing that for about an hour, I would have thought. That Just, might, yeah, I'm not one of them. I'm good on you. Hey, uh, why don't we kick off with what does, so VIFM, Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, tell us a little bit about the place. What does it yeah, do? We're a statutory agency. We were founded in 1988 and there's a long and convoluted story about how we're related really in, uh, to the Azaria Chamberlain trial because... Oh, really? Um, yeah, mm. Lindy Chamberlain's counsel at the time, a guy called John Phillips, now sadly uh, deceased, uh, lamented the quality of forensic evidence produced at the trial, and he ended up being the Chief Justice in the State of Victoria, and he was significantly instrumental in the founding of our place, you know, that Victoria should um, have an institute uh, that produced forensic evidence that the, uh, the courts could trust and rely on. And so uh, that was a significant um, ingredient in the uh, political machinations that led to the development of our place. And so, what so does that what does that mean to be independent? Because it seems to me then, so you're trying to get away from say one side of the courtroom versus the other, hiring their own experts, or is that what it means to be independent? Yeah. So we we see ourselves as um, not acting for any particular party. Of course, because we have an adversarial criminal system, we're called by usually by the prosecution. We're engaged by um, the arms of the state, particularly the police and the coroner, um, to investigate suspicious deaths and other deaths, as we'll get to, I hope. Uh, uh, but we are independent um, of the prosecution and the defence. We give evidence as we see it, and we're available to either side for discussions, um, should the needs arise. And, in fact, I quite enjoy those discussions with prosecution and defence counsel before trial so that yep. the issues can be clarified before they're put before a jury. So the sorts of things you do, because I know I've been to your place, so you do all the... Um Autopsies, coroner's cases. What are the other sort of... What are the broad departments within VIFM? OK, so I guess you'd say our core business is dead body investigation or death investigation in a medico-legal context. Uh, we also have clinical forensic medical specialists, so doctors who look at victims of assault. Um, you know, there's a particular interest at the moment on domestic violence. So we have some doctors working closely with police in developing educational programs, but also um, uh, providing proper forensic medical investigation of these um, crimes. We have forensic medical sciences based at our place, so the principal one of those would be toxicology. So we have our in-house toxicology service and we can do a lot of overnight toxicology analysis and I'll get back to that in terms of case triage, but also molecular biology and that's not uh, the sort of... uh, what would be called volume crime, I guess, by the police, so looking at DNA left at scenes, but we're interested in the medical elements of uh, DNA analysis, so the things that might contribute to a death, say cardiac rhythm disturbance, for instance, um, and also uh, identification, so taking or comparing the DNA we uh, might obtain from a dead body and comparing that with familial DNA to come to a diagnosis of identity. What sort of DNA? Familial? Familial DNA. So, so, so samples taken from other family members. Oh, I see. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Hey, I, I, we were keen to run through the process of what happens when someone dies. Yes. Yes. So, okay. you know, where, so you like physiologically or? <laughs> no, not so much physiologically. Um, more, you know, so what is, like how many people die in Victoria okay, each year? So, so Victoria's got a population of around 6 million. And yep. about, Six million have we got now? I think so, yeah. Wow. About five million of those are in the metropolitan area of Goodness. Melbourne. And about 39,000 people die a year. And Damn. of those, about 6,500 get referred to the coroner. What sort of situations? Okay, so there's a there's a, a piece of legislation called the Coroner's Act, 19, oh, sorry, 2008, and that replaced a 1985 Act. And I'll get on to that if we have time because I think that's really interesting, the, the evolution of the Coroner's Act. But uh, within that are the... the um, 
circumstances within which a person needs to be referred to the uh, to the coroner or the death needs to be referred to the coroner. So um, unexpected deaths um, obviously are natural, violent, suicide, accident, homicide, deaths in custody or care, so vulnerable individuals as well, mm. and cases where the cause of death isn't known. So, And... It surprises people to realise that um, of those 6,500 deaths, probably around about half of those referred to the coroner end up being natural causes deaths. As no, well. can I just jump in there? The, yes. This refer to the coroner thing that you've, you're saying, who does the referring? Uh, well, it depends on where the, the person dies, but it would normally be the, the police can, um, the doctor, the treating doctor can, if they can't satisfy themselves about a cause of death. Um, anybody can refer a case to the coroner, in short. Can anyone um, intervene in a referral? I don't is it, think is they it can intervene in a referral, but um, people can, I guess, now I don't know the legislation here that well, but um, question the coroner's right to assert jurisdiction over a case, right. but um, the coroner's a pretty powerful office. So they refer to the coroner... Yes. ..and you do the investigation or the autopsy on behalf of the coroner? Correct, yes. So what sort of stuff can you do? If a dead body comes in, what happens? OK, so can the, you do? in the 2008 legislation, I think there are a couple of really important things. First of all, in... The Act contains objectives of the coroner's legislation. So those objectives include avoiding distress and delays, as they can upset families, but also really highlights the preventive role of the coroner. So, you know, the coroner's really there to prevent similar sorts of deaths occurring in the future, and so, yeah, as much as they can. So the other element about the coroner's legislation is it introduced for the first time this notion of preliminary examination. So our Coroner's Act has provision for families to object to an autopsy occurring. Mm. Right. But this, this notion of preliminary examination or a triage process is something to which the families can't object. And the reason for that is because we're essentially advising the coroner on the basis of early investigations what we think ought to happen in a case, whether we think an autopsy ought to occur and whether or not we can provide a cause of death. So when a, a person's body is taken to our place in South Bank, a number of things happen. Uh, as part of the preliminary examination process. We review medical information. It might be a deposition from a hospital doctor or um, information from the family. We've, we have a very medical front end of the process, so we have trained nurses who engage with families and explain what the coronial process is about and their rights to object if necessary and also make inquiries about tissue donation. We haven't touched on the tissue bank, which is housed at our place as well. Uh, but we do also do a number of other things. We take a blood sample and we can do overnight toxicology, looking for around about 300 drugs at present. Wow. So we had those results ready the next day for when we're presenting the case to the coroner. And we do a CT scan. So just like a, a CT scan that would be performed in hospital, we scan the body from head to toe. Everybody? Everybody. Wow. Everybody. Yeah. You, we, had a, we had a smaller machine, first of all. We had a um, machine with a smaller hot donut. And so when I say everybody, some people wouldn't fit through the donut. But now we've got a bigger machine. So it's called bariatric forensic pathology. You sound and like a kid talking about his PlayStation. I've got, and a, big got one. a bigger one. <laughs> we've got a bigger one and a more powerful one now. Because yes, I'm just doing the math. 6,500 people, that's a lot of CT scans every day. It is. So we put the machines through a heavier workload than they get in hospitals, that's wow. for sure. And, and we've got a massive repository of data now. So we've been scanning bodies since 2005 and that means, you know, we've got about 60 or 70,000 full body CT scans. And so that triage process, putting yes. together the toxicology, the basic examination, looking at the medical data, um, all of that sort of stuff is about 24-hour process by the sounds of it, maybe a bit longer? Yeah, so if you, if you do the maths, it's around about 18 to 19 
uh, 20 bodies admitted to our facility every day throughout wow. the year. Wow. And then you decide the next day whether they go into a full autopsy or not. Yes, yeah, so part based of that process would be... and the initial investigation. So the preliminary examination pathologist would assimilate all of this data and then six days a week present this to the coroner, you know, a potted version of the history... Um, whether or not the case is deemed suspicious because that can have elements about whether or not or how the coroner views an objection to an autopsy with necessity that um, any future action against a potential accused is fairly informed. Well, sorry, keep going. Ignore me waving my hands around. Okay, we'll do Doing what's called production on the run. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Um, And so armed with all of that information, and I'll give you an example, for instance. Let's say a person collapses on a football field. Yep. And a young person, there's no suspicion that um, trauma's involved, but there is a suspicion that perhaps the death is um, contributed to by, let's say, an inherited cardiac rhythm disturbance. So we would get information, including a history of what happened at the time. We would be armed with overnight toxicology result. We'd have the CT scan that doesn't show any evidence of trauma, so blood in the head or broken bones or something like that. Then we would advise the coroner. In a classic case like that, we would say, listen, we're not quite sure what the cause or mechanism of death is, uh, but we think it needs further investigation. And part of the reason for that would be we might uncover information that's of significance to the next of kin. Right. You know, mm. Have they got the same potential yeah, some, genetic defect? Yeah. And so that, in that case, we would say the cause of death is unknown or unascertained, but we recommend an autopsy. Now, the, uh, our staff would then, after the coroner has made a decision, and in most cases they would take that advice, uh, they would go back to, we would go back to the family and say the coroner's considered the case and recommends an autopsy take place. Now, if the family then objects to that for various reasons, they might be religious, aesthetic or, or whatever, mm-hmm. um, the coroner then needs to reconsider the case in light of that objection. But if, you know, the coroner's got certain things that they have to do legislatively, which is confirm identity and find the cause of death if possible. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Welcome back, team. You're listening to Radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Doolittle. We have the panel beater and trainer wheels. And as I was saying before the break, we are chatting with Professor Noel Woodford, the director of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, which provides all the independent medical and scientific expertise to the justice system. Now, you were telling us about just normal deaths and what happens and the triage process. But I'm wondering, you know, I think like everyone, what, re- you know, what is like, what if there is a crime? What if the police have found a, um, you know, sort of someone in the park or, you know, there's been some crime and there's a dead person. What yes. is your role in that? Well, first of all, once once the body's been found and the police have attended, they'll notify the coroner's office of the death or, in fact, they notify the coronial admissions and inquiries office, which we run on behalf of the coroner. And then we would, as the on-call pathologist, normally liaise with the chief investigator at the scene and have a discussion with them about whether or not they think it might be beneficial for us to attend the scene. So uh-huh. sometimes uh, attending the scene might... Uh, decide or help the police decide very early on that it's not a suspicious death. In a classic case would be someone who dies at home from ruptured esophageal varices. So there's a lot of blood around and, you know, an attending young policeman looks at so that. So just for young players out there, I'm just going to show off, and even though I'm a psychiatrist, to shrink, I'm going to prove that I know a little bit of medicine. Esophageal varices are basically burst blood vessels in the esophagus, which is the tube going from your mouth to your stomach. And when they burst, often from alcohol or various other problems, chronic use, yes. um, you vomit up a lot of blood so it can look very traumatic. Yeah, and, and the other thing How is impressive that was that? Would I get a good mark for that at yeah. university? Not bad. I think you need to mention chronic liver disease. Yeah. Did I? Oh. <laughs> 
damn my lack of medical knowledge. Sorry, go on. So the police have turned up and there's lots of And on top of that, you know, the person might have collapsed and so they have head injuries, for instance. Yeah. So the police are concerned about those. But but let's say the case is out and out suspicious. Lots of stab wounds or gunshot wounds or something like that. So Sorry, go on. They might invite us to come along or discuss with us the merits of us turning up at a scene. Um, From a personal perspective, I think going to a scene really does cement the case in your memory. I don't think I've ever forgotten a case that Mm. I've been to the scene. It's almost like a moment frozen in time. If you you go into a house and there's a body on the floor and there's a half-eaten meal or a calendar with future events on it, it's... And a fish bowl tipped over and two fish... Actually, no, that's a quiz, isn't it? Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, Romeo and Juliet. Yes. So, what do you really learn, though? I mean, it's great that it freezes in time. What can you see, though? Because, you know, you're a, sci- you're a doctor and a scientist. What can you see at a crime scene? Well, there might be elements that um, are of significance to the police. So we might be able to offer an opinion about a likely time since death. And, you know, there are indirect indicators of that. So unopened letters at the scene, for instance. And right. then there are more, I put in inverted commas, scientific methods. So is there rigor mortis present? Is there post-mortem lividity? Is the blood settled after death? And then even more scientific methods. So we could take a, a rectal temperature and compare that with nomograms to work out you know, all bodies cool yep, after death until they get to ambient temperature. So that can also help. And there are some biochemical methods as well that are perhaps not very precise. And a lot of variables go into this, but the police might want to know about time since death. They might want to know um, you know, for instance... Uh, possible activity by a person after they've sustained trauma. So, for instance, someone with a stab wound to the heart, is it possible that they actually engaged in purposeful activity afterwards? So lots and lots of reasons why we might turn up at a a death scene. It just sounds so fascinating. It does. It does. Do you look at things like the sort of um, likelihood of mechanism of injury? Like, is that something that you can gather more information about at the scene? Yes, and and sometimes after having done the autopsy, I might ask the police to take me back to the scene. There was a case Mm. I did a, a while ago where there were a cluster of injuries on a person who'd been shot and I couldn't quite put it together. And so I did two things. I went back to the scene to look at the surface that they'd collapsed mm. on, whether or not that helped. And then I went out to the uh, police uh, library or gun library at McLeod to have a look at, you know, if, if this person was hit with the gun rather than just shot with the gun, uh-huh. whether some of those injuries might be, um, might be, or might help explain what was found on the body. This does sound pretty Quincy MD. I love it. <laughs> Can no, it's too late to retrain. We have forensic psychiatrists. In the criminal justice system, the police are represented by two separate yet equally important groups. Over to you, panel beta. Um, <laughs> what is the training these days? What is it the same okay. path if you were trying to do it from now? Would you go through the same pathway that you went through or is it different? Yeah, there's a number of different ways. Uh, yeah, everybody's done a medical degree, of course, and then you know, do two years after that in the hospital system and then get into pathology training. We prefer candidates who've done a, a bit of anatomical or surgical pathology training before they go into forensic pathology training. I did... Uh, full anatomical pathology training so that's another five years on top of medicine and then I did another year of forensic training on top of that so we're talking about 11 years or so. But you also did legal training? I did when I worked in, I was a home office pathologist in Sheffield in the UK and I did a Master of Laws in Medical Law while I was there in Cardiff. But you don't have to do that. That No, you don't have to do that. That was just, that was a significant interest of mine. What about the families around all this? I mean, the you know, death like these sorts of deaths that you're investigating are enormously challenging and traumatic for the family who are grieving. Do you offer support? How do the how do the family go? Yes, we do. I mean, we we don't have formal grief counselling at the uh, coronial services centre or at the institute, but there's a number of things. I think often it helps with families' grief to actually get 
relevant information when they need it. So we, we, as I said, we've medicalised the front end of the process. We have nurses there who engage with families and explain what the process is about. We also get back to families, talking to them about um, what the consequences of decision-making um, might be at that time, but also... Uh, you know, we're, we're tapped into providers of support out in the community so we can refer families if necessary. The other thing is that um, on occasions we have families come in so that we can explain to them what was found at an autopsy and what the consequences of that might be for their family health. So that's very much a health element to what we do. It's not all just justice system support. I'm sure it varies quite a lot from case to case, but in general, how long does it take for you to reach a conclusion about the cause of death? It depends what's required in a case. So we might, uh, Dr Doolittle mentioned at the start, the the need to involve or you know other forensic medical specialisms, so entomology, mm. um, odontology, anthropology. Uh, in a in a simple case, let's say the person who dies of a heart attack, you know, we might do toxicology. So the case could be signed out with a report given to the coroner within about three months or so. Okay. Um, it's, it, uh, but sometimes the cases may take longer if we require specialist neuropathology. I was just wondering in terms of the family sort of delaying that grief process a little bit and, you know, not knowing for three months or more. Part, part of what we, we can do is actually inform families of the progress of an investigation. Okay. So, yeah. you know, and, and that often helps. And, and the other thing is doing our best to provide a, a, um, a cause of death so that the registrar of birth tests the marriages mm. can give them a death certificate earlier in the process. And we do that about nearly 60% of the time. We can give a, a family a cause of death or a, a death certificate uh, within a week of the autopsy. Oh, okay. And that, you know, and, and that's really helpful to families because without it you can't deal with utilities companies, mm. you can't sort of get a lot of those uh, um, processes underway. Is there such a thing as um, an, a non-conclusion, an inconclusion? Yes, I mean... Probably about 5% of cases we get to the end of what we can do. So that's an autopsy, ancillary testing, toxicology, neuropathology, and really can't find a cause of death. And (laughs) uh, some of those we suspect are due to genetic causes that we just really haven't been able to get to the bottom of. You know, Mm -hmm. we're getting better at those sorts of things, and uh, particularly when it comes to uh, channelopathies or, or cardiac rhythm disturbance. You know, we... We have a very good family health service, so we can go back through generations and mm. interrogate families about Uncle Joe who died at 21 and nobody right. ever really knew the cause. So we can construct a pedigree and and actually uh, in surviving family members go back and actually test them on occasions to see the same genetic abnormality um, represented throughout a person's family history. And, wow. sort of, you know, and that's really important for families and, and their reproductive decisions as well. Mm. Hey... Um, Professor Noel Woodford from the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. It's been fantastic hearing about all that. It just sounds like an amazing job. It's well, <laughs> thanks you for having well. me on. Um, it's been great. Free Triple R. And you are listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR on Sunday morning. You have in the studio with you myself, Dr Doolittle, plus the panel beater and Dr Trainer Wheels, our resident medical student. I just love adding that in. Hey, um, panel beater, yeah. you have been doing a little bit of work this week, try, you know, trying to unpack the fascination that we've had with the Thai cave rescue when a whole lot of other big world events were going on. Yeah, it's, it's a cracking story. You know, it, it makes perfect sense that this would be a story that we hear about. It makes perfect sense that um, uh, we would take interest in it. But it then becomes particularly interesting why we pay so much attention to it, so much interest in it, when clearly 
um, it doesn't take much thought to realise that there's a whole lot of other things going on in the world. So how does this get in our face when other stories don't? What's the explanation for that? What's the social psychology of it? What's the moral psychology of it? Before we jump into some of the theories that try and answer that, um, let's check in with each other on how we actually related to the story how did you get exposed to it um how did you sustain your information gathering to it or did you ignore it did it not have um uh, resonate with you who's going first you go i'll go sure um i remember coming across it online probably on facebook or something initially um and just being so shocked i think at the um unlikelihood is that a word of of the situation just you know and then then these however many of them there were 13 little boys going for a walk really wholesome adventure you know and all get trapped and you just sort of think oh my god that could happen to anybody um and so unlikely and and surprising and shocking and then the thing that really got me was when they were sort of initially when they found them and initially trying to work out what the escape method would be that it could take months and I thought oh my god the, the thing that I guess was most noteworthy for me was just thinking about those that, that, that when the images came through when they found the boys all perched on the rocks there and I just thought these poor little kids have been sitting on the it's probably you know damp and uncomfortable and awful how on earth are they getting any sleep they must be starving they've been stuck in there for weeks and they could be there for months I just thought that is such a horrendous situation and I was just fascinated to see how they were going to get through it, I suppose. And and so you were following it online? Yeah, yep. not not too intently because I thought, you know, this could be going on for quite a while. I probably don't need to check in every day. Um, mm-hmm. And then I was so pleased to hear that they were rescued so quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I found a fa- I, I think I first heard that the kids were missing, but I didn't pay much attention. And then when they said that they'd been found, I paid a bit more attention, largely, I think, because... it. It struck a few things for me. One, I'd just done a diving course. So really? I was interested. Yeah, I just finished doing oh, a diving course. Oh, you could have gone over there. So <laughs> yeah. Did you put your hand up? But two, one of my biggest fears is claustrophobia. Oh, my I'm God. Like, I'm, I'm like a, an absolute neurotic mess most of my life. But <laughs> of the biggest ones, claustrophobia is right in there. And, um, and I've often thought I'd like to go in a cave, but I'm a bit scared. And so that got me. But even then, I didn't engage completely until the um, Navy SEAL died. Yeah. And when he died, mm. then I was just, you know, I've got my hands held to my face now. I was just so shocked that, oh, my God, this shit is real. Excuse yeah. me, swearing. And then it sort of became, oh, these kids really, if a diver's died, because at first I thought, oh, it's being blown up. They'll get the kids out. It's a cave. They're just going <laughs> to dig a hole and pull them out. And fish them and, out. You know, and I spent the first half of the week cracking jokes saying, well, they don't expect to play on Saturday if they haven't been to training. <laughs> if they've been sitting around in a cave all week, they are not getting a game on the weekend. And, you know, my son plays soccer. And so, you know, I've heard that so many times. And you're not training. You're not playing soccer. <laughs> and so, I, and then I became obsessed. You know, I didn't, I, I was reading the articles each day and watching it. And I even watched the review show on the weekend. You know, they had, a, the ABC had a sort of a special on all the things that happened. And I just thought it was an amazing, amazing human nature story. If I may, panel beater, I think maybe I might be jumping the gun on what you're mm. going to talk about. I think the thing that makes 
um, a thing like this so attractive is the story, right? Yeah. There's a narrative there. Boys go missing, boys get found. The and it's got you know it's got a climactic arc too. You know, it's yeah. going to be a really difficult rescue mission. Somebody dies. It's going to take months. Oh, now yeah. they're all free. And, and they presented great. it as Mission Impossible. Absolutely, it was a, quite, a completely An international hidden, effort. Yeah. Yeah. It was Mission. You expected Tom Cruise to Absolutely. jump out at any Absolutely. minute. Yeah, and, and even the fact that it wasn't. Like, um, like you remember when the uh, two miners were stuck mm. down the shaft in Tassie? Mm. Um, they both came up at the same time, right? It, in the um, Thai Cave Boys story, um, I think there were three different rescue yeah. episodes. Yeah. So you got these chapters, yeah. and so that narrative was unfolding, and we're waking up each morning for the latest. The info main thing and, the Thai ones missed out on, though, of course, was Bill Shorten. Where was Bill Shorten? Where was Bill Shorten? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But there are a couple of uh, a couple of features of the story, right? So we don't know these boys, but presumably lots of people um, could identify that maybe my, as you were saying, do little. Maybe my kids play sport. Maybe they go on excursions. Maybe da 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 da. And you can kind of put yourself in the parents' point of view in relation to these these kids. So they had um, that's that sort of sense. The um, the the. The response to this question, why do we empathise with people um, we don't know, or s- why do we sometimes identify with mm. people we don't know and sometimes we don't identify with people we don't know, and what are the distinctions? So a compare-contrast in this case, if we're trying to look for kids as part of the theme, um, kids in detention centres, for example. What is different about kids uh, who are locked up in a detention centre and kids who are in a cave? Um, and... You know, some of the explanations then start to emerge around, well, first of all, you've got to have the images, right? So the, we were, we were consuming it either online, um, through a social media feed, Very or true. we were seeing it on the telly. We actually had the visuals and we could see it. And as we know, we say the asylum seeker, um, kids, and certainly in the Australian case, less so in the United States case, um, we don't see the kids. We know they're there. Um, we don't see them. So part of this moral psychology is you're actually able to visualise, you're actually able to relate on, an, on, an, on a visual level. Mm-hmm. Then the other um, um, theory suggests that um, what else is required is that it needs to be seen to be solvable, right? Mm. That the issue needs to be something that... Can, it might go wrong, the kids might and come yep. out of the cave. Right, but they might. So there's sort of a narrative tension. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, that it could be solved. That we can rely on technology and expertise to get us out of it. And Elon Musk might send his submarine. <laughs> right. So reasons why we yes, Elon Musk got in the game, didn't it? So when we think about something like asylum seekers, or to introduce another compare contrast, something like climate change, we don't think it's it's such a big issue. So all of the rising water levels in the Pacific Islands that are affecting the livelihoods of a lot of people, we know it's going on, but um, we don't necessarily see that as a Training Surely the the politicised nature of those two issues makes it more complicated too. Like climate change and, and obviously the asylum seeker issue too. It's not as black and white, I suppose, for some people. You mm. know, there's sort of mixed messages coming in through the media like, oh, you know, they're they shouldn't have tried to come here. You know, you can sort of pin some blame on them, whatever, which, you know, i just like to say from the outset, I completely disagree with, just yeah. to be clear. Um, but, you know, there's no way you can really blame these Thai boys for getting stuck in a cave or there's no... You, c- you can't politicise that story in the same way, I suppose. I, I sort of had a similar sense too that I, I wondered would it depend what country they're in? 
that Ooh. sort of crossed my mind at one stage. See, Thailand's a very neutral country. We have a lot of relationship with it. Lots of Australians go on holidays. I've been there. I love the place. It crossed my mind, what if it was Pakistan that oh, you know often wow. annoys me and I don't like their politics or one of the countries that's, you know, just got terrible politics and, uh, you know, is run by religious groups and that's so interesting. no human rights. It'd probably get Would less media coverage, wouldn't it? Well, that'd be part of it. But, you know, because I could, I could sympathise, empathise, whatever the word you want to say, with Thai people. I've yeah. met thousands of them. I love the country. Sure. That was part of it. Well, I mean, that kind of introduces uh, the question of certainly um, our, our sense of relationship to the nationality um, and the context um, because, you know, there are mudslides taking place all the time mm. and, you know, mm. thousands of people are affected in earthquakes all the time and, and bushfires in China and, and things like this. So there, there are these natural disasters that are occurring literally all the time. So we've got these selective um, stories coming out and surely some, there's got to be some kind of um, social politics at least, if not international affairs politics going on there as well. Do you think it helps that, the, um, that it, it's an underdog, disadvantaged group? Like we see these poor Thai kids from poor families. Um, you know, they're underdogs. We love going for the underdog. You know, always go for the underdog. Is there an element there or, or not? Well, no, I, that's interesting. I mean, potentially, but I... Thailand's doing great, you know, certainly great over the last 25, 30 years. It's really kicking some goals economically and socially. There's nothing to dislike about this group of people. That's right. But there's still some significant poverty in in Thailand. It wouldn't be hard to find 12 Thai kids who are in really bad shape Mm. um, economically and and, and so on. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We are talking about what engages people in different international stories. And the panel beat has been telling us about some research he's been reading. He's already covered two of the key things. He says the story has to have good images that we can see and it has to be solvable. It has to be a solvable problem. What else have you got up your sleeve for us, panel beat? So, yeah, so there has to be... Um, it has, we have to think that it's poss- an issue that's possibly solvable. Um, the, third, the, the third next, and there's a, a couple more to come, uh, the third next... The third next? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> yeah. right, try again. Yeah, as articulate as ever. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that there's an end in sight, so that it's not going to go on forever. I mean, it's closely related to the idea that it's solvable, but um, that it's not going to go on forever. So, however long this boys in the cave story existed, it was maybe two weeks of heavy media, mm. something yeah. like that. So, how? Yeah, what was it, about ten days till they got them out? And uh, oh, they were missing ten days, and then how long did it take to get them out? About, about a week, week maybe. About a week, yeah. yeah. Um, so, in other words, the flip side of this is that uh, people fatigue with a story. Yes. So, you know, if you're hearing the story all the time, you know, you go, oh, that old thing, and you don't think you're hearing anything new anymore. Um, so, you just get tired of hearing about it, and can we move on? Uh, and I think I was listening to them more radio the morning that the final lot got out um and i think it was fane who was taking some calls and he said i've just received a text from a caller who said now can we move on to something else (laughs) already you know so there's a a sentiment that you know tick that box we're done with that story fair yeah, the yeah. public does. You know, they, they want, they do want to move on. They don't want to stay. That and so many big stories like the refugees is classic. Hardly gets any airtime now, even though it's just as important as the day it started. Sure. I think that's got to be a massive part of it because that's been going on for you know, over five years now. Yeah. And sometimes I sort of look back and think, oh my god, I can't believe it's been five years. You know, five years ago I never would have thought it would last this long, but that's it just right. can't yeah. remain in the public consciousness all the time for that long. Yeah. Um, 
the the next criteria that's been put forward as uh, as an explanation for why we might empathise with some and not others is the way that language is used, and this is related to the way the media presents information but also our politicians when they're talking about an issue or our engagement with it so you know we had uh, in Australia's case Turnbull promoting the Australian contribution to the rescue and that creates a, uh, a nationalistic disposition oh, to the, yeah also the Adelaide doctor, oh my the God. Adelaide yeah, doctor. who a lot of people yeah. are saying I'll Essential. probably get to, I'll get to play his part in the movie because <laughs> I dive and you know my experience absolutely yeah it's a given <laughs> So you know, it's it's the way that the uh, the kids are described, the coaches described, you know, the families are described, and these sorts of things, so mm. that we can have a sense of um, identity or positive or negative disposition. So the again, if we're doing a compare contrast, say with asylum seekers, um, you know, when they get labelled as invaders or illegal, then our willingness to recognise them as victims of something um, is is more challenged. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.